Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6. I want to make a confession as we begin this morning. Easter Sunday is perhaps the most difficult sermon I prepare all year long. There are a couple of reasons. First of all, it's generally the most people I'm going to speak to all year long. You know, as preachers, sometimes we have this grand idea that, you know, it'll be a great Easter and then after that it'll just keep going up and up and up. But the truth is, there are a lot of people that come on Easter. In fact, um, we've been having one service combined in the gym. And just so you kind of know, we've had about the same number of people in both services that we had usually in one service today. So that's a good thing. But, you know, it's bigger crowds mean kind of bigger expectations. Secondly... Everybody kind of knows what you're supposed to preach about. Right? I mean, Easter Sunday you preach about the resurrection. And so today I'm not going to do that. Okay? I'm going to do something different because this is what I did. You know, it's interesting that we live in a country that's still, for the most part, in fact, of everything you read, I mean, I think it was, I don't remember which magazine it was this week, maybe Newsweek or U.S. News or, or Time. One of them always does this, but... The, um, one of those news magazines put up on their cover this week, the, the cover of their magazine was Christianity in Crisis. And the whole story was about the fact that Christianity in America is on its decline, and it's going out, and nobody believes it anymore, and it's just a matter of time. What's interesting is, another group that does uh, polling, they're, they're more well known for their political polling, they're one of the most um, knowledgeable, or the ones the most trusted did a poll and they asked Americans whether or not they believed Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Physically came back to life from the dead. And in a country where Christianity is apparently in crisis and going away, 77% of people said they still believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what's interesting is if you read that, and you understand what that says, and then you look at the shape our culture is, and what's happening in just morality and in general followership of Jesus, and you see the decline that is happening, it makes you wonder what's going on from what people believe and what people do. And here's what I began to look at this week. Knowing that this would be the biggest crowds we would have, at least in some time and, and perhaps for a while or till next Easter, What did Jesus do when He had His biggest crowds? What did Jesus talk about when the biggest crowds gathered around Him? Because today is all about Jesus. It's about His resurrection. It's about His coming back from the dead. It's about His Lordship, His sovereignty. So what did Jesus do? Because you know that Jesus literally had thousands of people at a time following Him. So what did He do when they had that kind of crowd following Him? And The answer will probably surprise you. Because today people say when you've got crowds like that, you need to make sure they feel good and they, they want to come back and that you, you, you make them have a good first impression or at least have a good impression about what's going on. And as they leave, that they ought to leave with a place of, man, I had a good time or I enjoyed that. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, when we look at when Jesus had large crowds, what He often did was to preach a message that would drive people away. In John chapter 6, one of the most famous chapters of Scripture because of two stories that are in it. And Jesus is in the midst of some of His most 
popular days. In fact, in John chapter 6, I would say, and this is, I don't have any numbers kind of to, to, to say this here, and there may be people that dispute this. If this is not the biggest crowds Jesus ever spoke to, it's in the territory. At the beginning of John chapter 6, those of you that have your Bibles, John chapter 6, what, what is the first thing that happens in that chapter? Jesus does what? If you've got the, it helps if you've got the little headings. He feeds the 5,000, okay? So that means He has at least how many people in His crowd? 5,000, right? Now, there's kind of disputes there. Some of you have heard this, you know this, that it says in the Scripture He fed 5,000 men. That wasn't counting women and children. So there may have been eight, ten, fifteen thousand people there. And the amazing thing about John chapter 6 is, in John chapter 6, the first part, Jesus feeds all these people, and at the end of the day, He's exhausted. Out of very little, He creates enough food for 5,000 people. And then He sends all the disciples away, says, y'all go on to the other side, I'm going to deal with some people here. So after an exhausting day, He continues to do ministry again and again. As the night comes, He realizes it's time to go to the other side. Well, Jesus doesn't have a boat. So how does He get to the other side? He walks. He walks on water. Right after He feeds the 5,000, He gets on the lake and starts to walk towards the boat. Now, the boat is out there, and He walks on it. You know the story. He's walking out there. Somebody says, it's a ghost. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's me. Well, if it's you, Peter says, let me come walk with you. So Peter gets out of the boat, he walks a little way, he falls, Jesus picks him back up, he puts him back in. They get to the other side, daylight starts to come. We get the sense Jesus hadn't really been asleep very much at all. Daylight starts to come, and the people on the other side think, where did Jesus go? Now, we would like to think that their motives were pure, that where did this amazing teacher go? Where did this man of God, who we want to hear what he has to say, go? But Scripture seems to suggest that that's not the reason they were looking for Jesus. Anybody want to guess why they were looking for Jesus? It was time for breakfast. Right? Free food for dinner. We're hungry again. So where's Jesus? Let's go find Him. And so they, it, it's this interesting little thing. We're not going to read through the whole chapter. We're going to read just a few verses. But it, this interesting thing, they go on a search for Jesus. It's kind of a where's Waldo expedition for Jesus. And they finally found Him. You can imagine the first person, He's over here! Come on, let's go! And they gather again. And they're ready again. They're like, Jesus, teach us again. Come on, teach us. And if you want to go all day and into the night and give us some more food, we'll be good with that. And they come up to Jesus and they start talking. And Jesus starts to say things that are unexpected to them. He starts to say things like, um, all you really care about is your physical self. You don't care anything about the spiritual stuff. You don't care anything about what I've been teaching. You just care about the fact that you've been fed and that you're safe and you're secure. That's all you care about. In fact, he says, listen, you came to me for bread and you're going to be hungry again, but if you really want the bread of life, I am the bread of life. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. That's not what we're here for. Could you just teach us a little bit more like yesterday? Do some water walking. Give us some food. We'll be okay. And Jesus begins to say things that just freaks them out. If you want to be part of me, he says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
Now, on this side of the cross, and when we do the Lord's Supper and all that, we understand, oh, He's speaking metaphorically here. It's symbolism. He means that He needs to partake in the suffering of Jesus. But to the people there that day, they heard, you need to eat My flesh and drink My blood. And Scripture says, this is where we're going to pick up, in verse 60 of chapter 6. On hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, let me make a quick distinction because he's going to make a distinction here between disciples and the twelve. Here disciples means those 5,000 plus people that are there listening and thinking about following him. And they start to say, wait a minute, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 61, aware that his disciples are gumbling, Jesus said to them, does that offend you? What if I just rose up from here to where I was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless the Father is enabled. Verse 66. From this time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. So what happens is, Jesus gives these hard teachings and He doesn't give any signs that He's going to give them any more food and in the midst of it, they start, oh, wait a minute, we just, Jesus, we were here when it was easy. We liked it when it was just, you know, our stomachs felt good and it was easy teaching. We don't know that we can go along with all this stuff. Verse 66 says that from that time on, many of His disciples turned back and no longer Followed him. Verse 67. Jesus turns to the twelve, the twelve apostles, and says, Hey, listen, you just saw everybody walk away. This is your chance. Do you want to leave or are you going to stay? Jesus basically has what, in relationship terms, people sometimes call, he has the DTR talk. You know what DTR stands for? Define the relationship. If you've ever been in a dating relationship, there comes that point when you have to realize, you have to say whether we're in a dating relationship or not. Now, when I was growing up, that meant you talked about going with somebody. Right? She and I are going together. I don't know what we were going, but we were were fifth graders. We couldn't drive. We were going together. All right? These days, you have to define the relationship before you can become like Facebook official, right? You have to, important to to define what's going on. And there's always that kind of moment when you have to say, all right, is this just kind of a friendship thing or is this something we're going to pursue more? And there's always the danger if you have the DTR too soon, it's going to ruin it. And if you wait too late, it's going to ruin it. So it has to be perfectly timed. Well, Jesus looks at His disciples and He basically says, not in a romantic way, but just says, listen, we got to decide, what are you going to do? And He basically asks them a question. And we're going to talk about this for the next several weeks and what it means, the implications of it. And it wasn't in these terms, but in terms that we can kind of understand. He says, basically, are you one of my fans or are you one of my followers? Are you somebody that just gets excited about some of the things you hear? Or are you in it for the long haul? 
You see, those people who uh, had just left, they were the fans. You know, the people that get really excited about something, you know, you know what fans are, right? They're people that are enthusiastic in their support. Uh, in fact, a, a definition of fan is an enthusiastic admirer. You can tell who fans are. I've told this story before, but um, when I've gone to Titans games, it's not hard to tell who the die-hard Titans fans are. Right? They, they paint their chest. They wear. There's a guy that, that paints his face and wears uh, crazy headgear. Uh, this I've told you. Before. There's a guy that uh, I used to. Uh, where I've gone two or three times, I've sat with some church members, had some seats there for a little while, and they let me use them a couple of times. I sat in a place where two down from me was a guy that wore a hard hat the whole game and would just continually take what he had drunk and the leftover bottles and just beat the hard hat the entire game. Which was kind of cute when they were doing well, but got really annoying really quickly. It's not hard to tell who fans are, right? There are some people in this church who choose to root for a team from the north that wears blue. I don't know why anybody would choose that, but they do. And this week they had a little something to celebrate. Now, um, I have never understood burning couches and turning over cars to celebrate a win in a basketball game, but they chose to do that, alright? Not most of them, but some of them did. You can tell who enthusiastic admirers are. The people that are in stands, my guess is the guy that sat three down from me that had the hard hat on that would continually hit his head with bottles did not know a single Titan. Now, he knew their name, but he didn't know them. Now, he would talk to them during the game as if they knew him. Right? Oh, Chris, you know better than that. Come on, Matt, throw it in the right place. But when it comes down to it, they're just fans. What Jesus says here is those people that just left, I'm not interested in those people. I'm not interested in fans. He turns to his disciples and he says, This is your chance. Do you want to leave? Here's my guess Jesus is still not interested in fans. He doesn't really care how many stickers you got on your car, how many fish you've got eating Darwin fish on your car. He doesn't really care about how much Christian music you listen to or don't listen to. What He cares about is, are you full on committed to Him? Are you a fan of His? Or are you a follower? Over the next few weeks, we're actually going to investigate times when Jesus had the DTR with people. The What kind of follower or fan are you going to be? The relationship question. And what we're going to look at is, how does that apply to our lives? But today, I want you to see an answer that is given here that will remind us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see, the people that left Jesus were more interested in their physical comfort than their spiritual life. 
They didn't want to give up control of what they were doing in their lives to Jesus. And they even thought he might be a little bit arrogant to say that he was better than Moses in declaring he was the bread of life. And so they're concerned about keeping appearances as they are. They were okay if Jesus was a part of their life, but they're not okay if Jesus is their life. They were okay if Jesus was one day a week kind of thing, but not if it is an every day a week kind of thing. They were okay if it's a one Sunday a year kind of thing, but not an every day kind of thing. They are okay if it doesn't infringe upon who they are and what they do. In fact, fans never feel like Jesus imposes Himself in any aspect of their lives. Where followers realize that Jesus imposes Himself on our lives all the time. He looks at them and He says... Do you want to leave? And Simon Peter, always willing to step up. This time he gets it right. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's what Peter's answer basically is. We have no hope except in You. You see, here's what people that are followers of Jesus realize, is that without Him, they have no hope. You want to know why the resurrection is so important? It's because, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then what we're doing right now is useless. Vanity. Doesn't matter. Those nice new Easter clothes you got on? Doesn't matter. All that renovation we just did over there in that sanctuary? Shouldn't have done it. Being in here on Sundays and sometimes Wednesdays and doing what I've given my life to, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then none of that matters. Your life is useless. It's in vain. But if Jesus rose from the grave, then all of it matters. And He is everything. Here's what Peter basically says. Peter, first of all, says there are no other alternatives. Lord, where do we go? You are the only alternative we have. It says you have the words of eternal life. That means our future is in your hands. And verse 69 says, we believe and have known. The idea there is, we have believed in the past and we have been found truthful in believing you over and over and over again. That every time we have trusted you, we have been proven right. So basically, Peter says, God, in Jesus you have provided all we need for our past, our present, and our future. It's not as if, Jesus is something we can add on to our life. According to the Word of God, following Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. So let me ask you a simple question. And I hope you'll be here in the weeks ahead as we kind of unpack it little bit by little bit. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you somebody that enthusiastically uh, says, oh, yeah, Jesus is a great guy. I believe in the resurrection. Yeah. But it shows no effects in your life whatsoever. Or are you someone who is passionately devoted to following Jesus no matter what that means for you? 
some of you are here today and when I say the question, are you a fan or a follower, you don't even think about it. You're like, oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a follower. I'm, I'm here. I'm here all the time. One of the dangers in American Christianity is we've made it really easy to become a fan of Jesus. What I'm asking you is, has following Jesus completely reshaped your life? Some of you are here and you say, I don't even, I'm here because I got drug here, or I told somebody I'd be here because it's Easter. I don't really believe that stuff. Here's what I'll tell you. What's important to understand is that what you do with Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And before you settle anything else in life, you need to decide what you believe and are going to do about Him.